I entitled today's message, No More Tears. And I want to begin with a quote by C.S. Lewis on the top of your sheet. thought this was rather brilliant. Of course, he always says brilliant stuff. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I want you to chew on that one. You think we were made for down here? No, we were made for something else. We are longing for heaven. Let me express it this way. Christianity is primarily a forward thinking or a forward focused faith. What do I mean? Even though Christianity talks about how to live today, even though Christianity talks a lot about uh, ways to break through things and allow the Lord to be more a part of your life, and he's transforming us into the image of his son right now, everything we do is in light of eternity. We forgive because of what Christ did in the past and where we're headed. We live a certain way. We give up certain things in light of what is to come. It is a very forward-focused faith. That doesn't mean it's not practical for today. It just means we know heaven's coming. We know that this isn't all of it. Paul talks about this world as we are what? Foreigners traveling through this. We're just passing through. Ultimately, our destination, what we were built for, is still to come. All right. Well, I want you to consider now for a moment John's original audience that he wrote the book of Revelation for. They were in one of the most persecuted, intensely uh, beat up, turmoil filled, fear filled times of the church in all of history. They were crushed by the Roman Empire. They were being slain by the thousands. And he wanted to write them out a message that Jesus Christ had given him. What was that message? A message of hope. Who is still on the throne? Jesus Christ. Where are we headed to be with him? This is a message of comfort. We just finished last week talking about what? The great white throne judgment where we stand before God and give an account of who we are and what we have done. Corner and we talk a lot about hope and a lot about heaven. That is all moving forward. The next couple weeks is a lot of discussion about glory. So we're going to study that today, but I want to give you the fill in the blank, lest you feel that all the grief that you feel now in the recession, in the struggles of life, in the disease that we wrestle through, in the family relationship problems, whatever it may be, I need you to burn this in your mind. Fill in the blank is this. The tears of today don't cloud heaven. The tears of today. Do we have tears today? Yes, clearly we do. But they will not cloud heaven. They will be brushed away. They will be soothed. And there will come a time for freedom. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21.1. We're just going to read through verse 8 together. Um, In case you need the page number, it's the last book of the Bible, but it's page 878. In the Bibles that were handed to you. Revelation 21.1. I'll just read through verse 8 and we'll pray for the word of God. And we will tear it apart and see what we have. John said this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur for this is the second death. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that today we might understand where we're headed, that we might know for sure the glory that awaits, that Lord, you said through Paul that all our problems here, as heavy as they are, do not compare to what is to come. Lord, some of us are in pretty dramatic pain. We feel we're at the end of our rope. And you said, even those do not compare to the joy and the glory and the freedom of heaven. God, give us a vision of what it would be like to be with you unhindered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time we left off, all of God's enemies had been put away. Remember? Satan in the lake of fire. The Antichrist in the lake of fire. The false prophet who deceived the people in the lake of fire. Hades, death in the lake of fire. All of God's enemies, all that stands opposed to who he is and his character have been removed. And to be thrown away to be remembered no more. But now what? Mankind has already been sifted. Those that rely on Jesus Christ, those that adhere to him and grab onto the hem of his cloak and cry out, save me to those. He is given the right to become children of God and they are going to be with him. To those that have traded him for something else. Depart to go to whom they have pledged allegiance to. The enemy. But now what? Where do we go from here? We know that when Jesus sat on his throne, the old world, all that we know about earth and heaven, got melted away in the heat. And what? All things are going to become new. So here John sees it literally. Now, remember, John is just writing down what he's seeing. I don't think he understands it all. I don't think he gets it. He's not always trying to make some cool reference. I think literally God's trying to make some pretty intense references through him. But I don't know if John gets it. So he says this, I saw, right? 
a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Sounds pretty practical, right? Hey, you got lost the last one. Let's go get a new one. What is most intriguing about that phrase to me is that we have a new earth at all. We always kind of have this idea in our minds that when we die, it's all about heaven. And we always make heaven somewhere else, right? Oh, it's some faraway place and then we're going to be out of our bodies and we'll be little spirit orbs or whatever. That's not biblical. Oh, we're going to be little floating around ghosty type things. No, that's not biblical either. Christianity teaches what? A bodily resurrection. The tomb is empty, folks. Jesus took his with him. And he's going to give you a new one as well. What I find intriguing about discussions of heaven in the Bible is how much is familiar. We think, oh, what's it going to be like? It's going to be this brand new dimension. And oh, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to be nervous. And what's going to happen? All of a sudden, John looks and he goes, hey, look, another big blue ball. Hey, it's another earth. That's weird. And it begins to come into view that God refashioned and made one that we're very familiar with. Why? I would suggest for the peace of our hearts. I would suggest that all throughout the Bible, God keeps doing things that are familiar to his people and encouraging them along the way so they don't get discouraged. I think he gives us tons of familiar stuff. For example, when God speaks to you, it may very well be in English. Yeah, that was nice of him. Why? Because it's familiar. When he talks to Pastor Steve, he's got options. <laughs> right? He can speak in Ugandan or he can speak in English. The idea is it probably would be in his native tongue. Why? Because it's familiar. A lot of things that God does, when God decided to send his, second, his son, the second person of the Trinity to earth, what did he look like? A common, everyday, ordinary man. Here comes Jesus walking in. Everyone's like, you're a little boring. <laughs> wow, really? You're God? Not all that exciting. Don't you have like superpowers? Don't you have, can't you fly? Can't you do something? You're God. And he walks around in a fishing village. Why? Because it's familiar. Throughout scripture, God always seems to quiet down the scariness to be gentle with his children. I do see that. I think that's what this is all about. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, but there was one big difference. What did John see that was different about the earth? There was no longer any sea. Why? Ooh, that's a big debate. Why is there no more sea? Uh, we don't know. We got guesses. There's either a literal reason Oh, there's a symbolic reason. I'm going to suggest to you that John saw it literally, but it has a symbolic value. Okay, what would be the literal reason? I don't know. Maybe God doesn't like boats and he's sick of the ocean. I have no idea why he would not put any sea in there literally. Do I think that there's going to be bodies of water in heaven? Yeah, probably. Why? Because he made them down here and they're really cool. So maybe he'll make some better ones, right? Ones that we can walk on. I don't know, right? But I do know there's a symbolic thing. When you speak of sea, 
in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it takes on a different tone. What does it take on? The tone is to the ancient peoples, the sea represented either chaos or the underworld in their viewpoint. How do we know that? Because do you remember when the Antichrist rose up? He looked like a beast that rose out of the sea. You will hear and the flood swept over me or the terror of the seas engulfed me. You will hear these phrases in the Old Testament. There's a literal reason because they literally did not know what was under the water. They didn't have opportunities to dive down and know everything that's going on. It was a great mystery what was under the sea. Remember I told you before that in the Old Testament, God addressed the issue of the alleged underworld when Elisha caused the axe head to float out of the water and he withdrew it and said, God's in charge of that too. Do you realize that when Jesus walked on the water in the New Testament, it was more than just a cool trick? It was to show what? Absolute control, sovereignty, and domination over the water. He could stop the wind and the waves. Why was that important? Because they represented chaos. No, he was in absolute control. He is the master of the universe. In heaven, there's no more chaos, no more turmoil, no more struggle. In the Babylonian religion, the ancient world of Babylon... They had a view that all of the world was a great cosmic clash between God Marduk and the evil dragon Tiamat. Tiamat, the dragon, came from the sea. He was chaos. And the great God would fight against the dragon of chaos. You'll see a lot of similar analogies that are drawn in Revelation. Why? Because it was familiar. So God said, hey, you've heard that story, right? All right, let's build on that. All right, fantastic. Let's go with that. You know what I'm talking about. Does Satan have to be really a dragon? No, but he uses the analogy because it's familiar. This is a message of peace. There's no more turmoil. Then he goes on and gets very specific. And I think that this is the heart of the whole message. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now for us, we're like, really, we got to have another Jerusalem to a Jew. That's a huge deal. Everything's about their city. That's their special city. Why? What's in the city that's so special? The temple. Everybody familiar with what the temple is? Why is the temple important if it's just a building? Because there's a certain room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. What's in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. What rests on the Ark of the Covenant but the presence of God? The temple and Jerusalem represents for the Jew the presence of God among men. Do you understand why they want it so badly? Do you understand why it's such a big deal to them? Now to a Jew, John, he's a Jew. He sees the heaven being, the Jerusalem being restored. And he's thinking, yes, this is it. This is the one we've been looking for. All ours have been a pale version of that one. But as it comes down, notice that it begins to be personified like a woman. Look at this. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. What? Beautifully dressed for her husband. What is a city dressed like a bride? What is he talking about? Meaning she's adorned. But why would he say that she's feminine? Why would he take this city and make this whole husband-wife connection? What does the New Testament say that we are as saints? 
we, like living stones, are being built into the temple of God that God would indwell his people. We are the bride of Christ. Have you now connected all the pieces? That's what's going on here. This is all John's way of saying, that's us. That's all believers. We've been united together. God dwells in us. Look, we look beautiful. We look magnificent. And God's presence dwells in us just like it does in the holy temple. And the city comes down out of heaven as a word picture. And he sees what? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you know who's preparing you for that day? Because we're going to be beautiful. Who's preparing us for the day we see Jesus? But the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Why? What is he doing with us? We have a three-step process to make us look good. What is the three-step process? Purification. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved and forgiven from your sins. And all of his righteousness is given over to you. And you get to trade lives with him. You get perfect. He gets damaged. And what? We are purified in his eyes. We are clean and white in God's eyes. Purification. Second step is what? Sanctification. That's a fancy word for what? God's going to chisel away at you until you look like Jesus. Right? He's going to work on you. Most of the ways that he works on you is he gets you to get married. And he hammers on you, right, through the other person. And you're like, man, this person's irritating. That's the chisel of God you married. He's making you into Jesus. He's making you to look a lot more like God, right? You're not going to be God. It's just that you're his kids. And he wants you to look like your dad. So he shapes you more and more into that. That's sanctification. What is the last step in making you look good? glorification. We're going to get brand new bodies and we're all ready to go. And we are fired up and ready to hit heaven running, right? Three-step process. He will make us beautiful. But notice the biggest part of this is what? God's going to be with mankind. Real quick, let me drop a bomb on you. Ready? If you are still looking forward to heaven for what you're going to get, you miss the boat. The whole glory of heaven is not what's there. It's who's there. God needs to be enough for you. I was asked last night after the sermon that a gentleman who had lost someone in his family said, is it okay to look forward to seeing your relatives? I said, oh, absolutely. Of course it is. As a matter of fact, that's very biblical. The Bible talks a lot about longing to see those that have gone before us. Of course that's appropriate. But you can't just want to go to heaven to only see them. Do you understand? God must be enough. And not just enough, but a blessing. 
and something glorious that hit the whole point of heaven is being with God unhindered. Let's make it practical. How many of us struggle with the Christian life because we're sick and tired of not being able to touch God, talk to God directly or get any of our questions answered or engage with him like in the flesh? How many of us want to give up our faith sometimes because we're so frustrated because he seems like he's a million miles away in heaven just like that? Click, it's all gone. And you engage with him directly. And all that fear and wondering and questioning falls away. And you are free. And you can look in the eyes of your Savior and ask him a question. Do you love me? And you'll hear his voice say, I do. I died for you. That's powerful. That's heaven. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what tricks are there. I don't care what I get a chance to have. I don't care how big my house is. I just want to be with my Jesus. It's the only thing that matters. Because when I'm with him, I don't care about anything else. Amen? He moves on. He was seated on the throne. And he said, I'm making everything new. One commentary made the really brilliant observation that what he did not say was I'm making all new things. Don't flip the words around. What did he say? I'm making everything new. Notice he keeps the familiarity. It's not that suddenly we're all going to have 42 heads. He's not just making up and going, I hated all that old stuff I made last time. That's so early century. <laughs> That's so beginning of the world, right? He's not going to say that. He made it and it was beautiful. So he says, hey, you want to see what I can do? And he begins to create the world afresh and refashion it in such a beautiful way. And he's making the things new, but he's not just only making new things. Now, will there be new things here? Yeah. I'm sure that God is so creative. Honestly, still in this world, we've been here for quite some time and we're still finding new things. They just found the other day, I always look online, there's a little scientific uh, um, observations and things that they find for the first time. I love those. They just found a little lizard that can, that can uh, sit on water, can stand on water. Now, you guys all know the Jesus Christ lizard that can run across water. You've all seen that, the frilled lizard that can run across water. I'm not talking about that guy. Talking about a little lizard that can just hang out and stand on water. Because he's so tiny, he doesn't break the surface. And so they just found him. They've never known he was there before. A brand new lizard that they just found. Now, if God made that much creativity in this world, think about what the next world's going to be. It's going to be an eternity of adventure. An eternity of observation. And, oh my gosh, isn't God amazing? Because we'll be saying that all eternity. There's a lot to discover. We thought it was pretty cool checking out this globe, right? It's going to be far better in the next. I am making everything new. And he said, write this down in case John was just staring. <laughs> For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. Meaning, you know, the whole Bible story and everything that we've been talking about, what you've been waiting for. We're there. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. 
Now, that word is pretty lame in English. Let me, let me give you the Greek definition. I am the beginning, the origin of all things. It doesn't mean um, I just started stuff. It means everything that exists has emanated from me. I'm the source of all things, and I'm the ultimate goal of all things. Not just the end, but the ultimate goal to which everything arrives. So, in other words, if you're going through life and you're going, I just long for something more, there's something more, there's something more, guess who his name is? Guess what his name is? Jesus. You're going to run right up to his doorstep, knock on the door, and he's going to answer. He's going to go, hi, how are you? I'm everything you've been looking for. Then he said, to him who is thirsty... What do you think he's talking about? What, the desperation of our soul? That constant, there's got to be something, right? Like, really, this isn't it. Tell me that this whole messed up, I don't have anything, nothing satisfies this garbage of this world, where inside my soul feels like a desert because I'm constantly longing for something. He said to him who is thirsty like that, I got more than enough water for you. I will give to drink without cost. That means it's grace. I will give without cost from the spring of the water of life. Who does the water of life flow out from? Jesus. He who overcomes, meaning he who adheres to me, will inherit all of this. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, The murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. And you go, what? Why you got to end on a down note? Come on, man. I was just getting hopeful. What are you doing to me? I didn't write it. Why is that there? He says, if I am the desire of your heart, boy, are we going to have fun. But if you trade me away because you want something more than me, we're not going to be together. Are we clear on that? If you look at that list, you're going to see a lot of stuff that made sense to John's early audience. Because it was under the heavy persecution that people began to betray each other, give up their faith, panic and fear, and trade Jesus for something else. He said, you don't walk away from me. I'm telling you right now, if you want me, you can be with me. If you want something else, we have nothing to talk about. That's what it means. So what do we do with all this? I can tell you this, you've got to look at your current life situation in light of what's to come. I can tell you that. I can tell you that this is not forever. No matter who I counsel, no matter what type of horrible, horrific things are going on in their lives, I know that the end of the story is good. I know that there is hope. I know that we can live knowing that we only have a short time here and that there will be glory forever. I do know that our stuff does not compare to what is to come. I do know that our hearts can be full of joy for that very reason alone. For those that are adhered to disease or bound in a wheelchair. 
Someday they will run. Someday they will be free. For those who, whether sin, sickness, and disease has robbed them of fun and joy and laughter, that that will be restored, maybe for the first time. And there will be pockets of you that will be opened up like never before. And you will thrive. This is not the sum total of you. This is not all of you. This is not what you were built for. There is so much more to come. And when you pray, praise Him for that. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You, Lord, that You would capture our imagination with just a few words. That God, ultimately, you're the only thing I care about in heaven. And I just pray, Lord, that I would not always want your stuff, but I would want you. That I would not be content with anything less than all of you. That even in this life, as I have already begun to live my eternal life, that, Father, you said for your children there will be no more death, that we will never die, even though in this life we may. God, as we have already begun eternity, may we fall in love with you today. For any that are within the sound of my voice that do not know you, I ask that you would woo them in your love and you would draw them to yourself. God, do not allow us to trade you away for anything less, but 100% dive into you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.